And as we read from our passage this morning, we find ourselves in the Gospel of John as we prepare to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ just next week. We find ourselves this morning in preparation for that celebration. At the beginning of the Gospel, chapter 1, verses 19 through 29. Follow along with me as I read. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy to to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. We'll stop there for now. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Thank you for your patience with that. If you have read many books at all, watched many movies, or seen very many television shows, and I trust after a year of COVID, all of us fall in that camp, If you've done any of those things, you are no doubt pretty familiar with the typical storylines that are produced year in and year out. You are familiar with the typical characters that are thrown in, you're you're familiar with the typical plot lines, you're you're familiar with the typical settings of your average stories. And as such, as a result of being familiar with those things, most of us are probably fairly good at predicting how a story's going to play out, aren't we? For we see certain characters come to play and we say, okay, I I think I know what's going to happen here. We know what sort of dialogue to expect. We know the general ending before it even comes close. And so, for instance, if you're watching a movie that, that really focuses on a scrappy young group of baseball players that no one believes in, and everyone thinks they're about to get beaten really badly by the team that everyone hates, well, what do you think is going to happen? It turns out they're going to win and everyone's going to be amazed. That's not a typical surprise, is it? If around Christmas time you find yourself watching a Hallmark Christmas movie, right? You know pretty quickly that independent woman who never wants to put down roots anywhere. Well, you figure out pretty quickly who she's going to fall in love with. Turns out that love was right in front of her the whole time. She didn't know it. You understand what's going to happen. If you're watching a scary movie and an unimportant character flees the bad guy by running upstairs, what's about to happen to that person, right? You know it's not going to end well for them. Regardless of the genre that you are reading or watching, all of us know those typical tropes that are thrown out. We know the dialogue, we know the imagery, we know it well, and even though we watch it and find entertainment, it's not necessarily anything that astonishing. But sometimes, once in a while, there is that book, there is that movie, there is that television show that defies all expectations. And it leaves audiences wondering week by week what's going to happen next. For while they still borrow heavily from those older, more well-known stories, they do things with characters that you would never expect. 
They, they're able to expand those universes in which they inhabit. And, and they do so, as they do so, they expand your own imagination, your own sense of creativity. And you find yourself hooked on these stories because of how surprising they are. I don't know what story first did that to you, or if there's a particular book that stands out in your mind. There are certainly those movies and those books that stand out to me. I'll save you my own reviews of those, maybe for some other time. But we've all read those books. We know those stories, and we understand that as we watch a story like that, we, we see their power not just in their ability to, to entertain us, but to capture our imagination. They're able to challenge our beliefs, to make us rethink how we view movies, how we read books. They challenge us to, to change the way we approach entertainment as it stands. There are many stories that accomplish this shocking turn of events. But I think what oftentimes we fail to appreciate as Christians, what we fail to appreciate as those who have, ra- have been raised in the church, is how the greatest example of that shocking turn of events is the story that stands before us this morning and the story that we will once again look at next week. It's the story of Jesus Christ. What we see in our text today is a reminder of just how shocking of a story this is. How it defied the expectations of even the most religiously devout individuals. How no one could have possibly seen this coming. And as we look at that story begin to unfold, in those days that preceded the ministry of Jesus Christ, and as we look at it unfold next week and the ultimate conclusion, what I hope we understand is that as we celebrate Palm Sunday, as we speak the name of Christ, as we celebrate Easter next week, we are not just trotting out some old religious story. We are speaking of the most glorious story that has ever been revealed to humanity. And as commonplace as it might have become in our minds today, it remains the most awe-inspiring message that is not only able to entertain, it's able to save souls damned to hell. And my prayer then is as we examine the story today, we might be re-engaged with just how surprising it was. As we examine this story today and lead into next week, we might be more prepared to, to speak of this beautiful story that as we just sung, should leave us standing in awe. And as we stand in awe, then my prayer is that after today, we might stand just like John the Baptist stood in his own day, not seeking attention for ourselves, but only seeking greater attention to be pointed towards Jesus Christ, who stands at the center of this greatest story ever told. With that being said, let's open, us, or open up our time in prayer, and we'll begin examining this old and somewhat familiar story that is still incredibly shocking today. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, as we prepare to celebrate Easter next week, I think many of us could admit that, that we are not so much prepared to celebrate the resurrection of Christ as we are just focused on the many things we still have to prepare for and, and bring people over to our house and, and celebrating and, and doing our regular traditions, God. In the process of going through those routines, it is easy to forget just how amazing of a celebration stands before us, God. And so as we come before you, and as we examine the Gospel of John this morning, I pray, God, that we might once again be utterly awestruck by the story of the Gospel. For those here who have not yet put their faith in Christ, I pray they are stunned by the presentation of your Son. I pray they are stunned by his majesty, and I pray that as they are stunned by that majesty, they might be all the more prepared to be stunned by his grace and his love. 
And I pray that you bring them to a saving faith in you today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, God, I pray we too might be stunned today. Might be once again, be struck with awe, the glory of this story as it begins to unfold. Might we never grow tired of this story regardless of how many times we hear it, but might we be awestruck every time. And in so doing, Lord, might we be all the more motivated to tell this story to everyone who passes by. We praise you and we thank you for all these things. And we do it all to the praise of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. As the story picks up in John chapter 1, verse 19, it's important to appreciate the mindset of these individuals that are going out to speak to John the Baptist. Some of you are familiar with John the Baptist, and if so, you have a vague understanding of just how bizarre of a sequence this is. But if not, it's important to understand why these religious leaders would be seeking him out. For as the story opens up, it's important to know that that we've gone about 400 years without any sort of prophecy at all. None. Silence. For those 400 years, religious leaders, like those who are sent out to discuss matters with John the Baptist, those individuals had carry on the same old stories they had always been told. They had taught on the Passover, they had offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, they had carried out the law as it had been carried out for generation after generation after generation. And in their minds then, they were doing everything they needed to do. Yet in the midst of their own ministry, in the midst of their endless sacrifices, suddenly they hear about this bizarre guy out in the wilderness named John the Baptist, who dresses and sounds an awful lot like Old Testament prophets and who is really having a pretty confrontational ministry. And they're confused as to how he fits in the stories that they know so well. And so they go out and and we see from the beginning their mission in going out to him is to try to figure out exactly who he is. Where do you fit in our story? And in this conversation immediately, in verses 19 through 21, we see elements of their own familiar story of the Old Testament come to the forefront. We see they too are are taking those old characters and trying to interpret John through that lens. As they do so, in verses 19 through 21, we see first of all their, their insistence on speaking of these familiar prophets, these characters who played central roles in their Old Testament story. This comes into play immediately if you follow along with me again. Verses 19 through 21. There again we read, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He answered and said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now this line of questioning might seem somewhat odd to us today. Where they seem like pretty broad guesses as to who this person is before them. We see three figures, of course, mentioned in this discussion. The first is the Messiah, who is brought up immediately by John the Baptist. The second is Elijah, and the third is Moses. The question, of course, is why would this be their focus? Why would John need to insist that he's not the Messiah? Why would John need to insist that he's not some resurrected Elijah? In the same manner, why would he need to insist that he's not Moses. Well, the reasons are too many to name in our message this morning. But it is important to remember that these three figures were by no means random choices by these Levites, by these priests. 
for they reference three figures that were central to their Old Testament story, central to their ongoing hope. Many of you are no doubt already familiar with the first, of course, the Messiah. The Messiah was that long-promised, long-awaited deliverer of God's people. We read of him as far back in Genesis 3 when God promises that eventually he will send that seed of, of man who will crush the head of the serpent, crush the devil. We read famously other prophecies in books like Isaiah. Isaiah is full of prophecies regarding that future Messiah. One of the most famous is found in Isaiah chapter 9. You can turn back with me, if you will, to Isaiah 9 to be reminded of that central prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet speaks of this future Messiah. And specifically, in chapter 9, picking it up, in verse 2 we read, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence. With the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloaked, rolled in blood, will be, will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government, of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. For then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah 9 is just one of many Old Testament prophecies that speak of this child that will be born. This future king, this future spirit-anointed Messiah who will arrive on the scene and, and he will deliver the Jews. He will deliver them from the oppressive rule of the Romans. And he will bring them into a peaceful existence with God. It seems before they could even ask that question, though, John the Baptist cuts it off. And he immediately says, I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. So with that being established, we go to the next question. And it is here that I think for many of us, the questions become confusing. For having seen him to be not the Messiah, they say, what then? Are you Elijah? Now to many of us, Elijah does not really play a central role in the Old Testament. We read a few stories about Elijah in the Old Testament. There's some fun ones in there. But we don't really understand why this would be the natural the conclusion of these religious figures. I mean, if, if you heard some powerful person speaking today, say a politician, I doubt any of you would think, oh, they're really good at speaking and a really good politician. You think that's Abraham Lincoln come back from the dead? Right? It's not our, our manner of thinking. If that is your manner of thinking... Well, we can talk after the service. But that's not the way we, we think. That's not how we view history. But for these Jewish leaders, that was very much the way un they understood history. And there were a number of reasons for, this, for them to assume this. One of the biggest reasons is one of the final words that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And so if you turn back, for instance, to the book of Malachi, and you don't need to turn there, but at the very end of the Old Testament, just before those 400 years of silence begin, you have this word from the Lord in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The prophet there says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. 
the final word in the book of, the, of Malachi. And if that's the final word in Malachi, you understand that why is a Jew? You would think, okay, well, I guess we're looking for Elijah. And as if that didn't make, it, uh, make enough sense, it makes even more sense when you consider just how odd this John the Baptist figure is. For it's important to remember that John the Baptist was not some average guy out in the wilderness just carrying along with his day. No, as I said earlier, John the Baptist, in appearance and in ministry, very much looked like he was trying to mimic people like Elijah. Turn with, you, with, with me, if you will, back to Matthew 3. And you see this bizarre appearance on display. In Matthew chapter 3, we're given a, a bit more detail into John's ministry, preaching-wise. And in John 3, we read these, beginning, these words beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, which he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camels here, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all of Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. I think oftentimes, since we're so far removed from the culture of Matthew 3, we might be tempted to think, well, I guess that's how people dressed back then. I guess people wore camel's hair and ate a bunch of wild honey and locusts. But they did not. This was a weird thing to do. There's a reason why thousands of people were flocking to John, because he wasn't just speaking as, as a rabbi. He was both dressing like and speaking like Old Testament prophets. For Old Testament prophets themselves tended to carry about a, a fairly odd lifestyle. They were oftentimes distinguished by their diet, by where they lived, by the way they dressed. These were not your average looking people in the streets. These were wild men. And John the Baptist very much fit the bill. And so based off of his message based off of his appearance, based off how popular he was, and based off those prophecies, it would make sense for a Jewish leader to think, well, maybe it's Elijah. Maybe this is what Malachi had promised to us. But again, in response to this question, John the Baptist very quickly says, no, I am not. And so, with that shot down, they move on to this third and final candidate in familiar prophets, that candidate being, are you then the prophet? Now, the prophet is not named here, but it is assumed and believed by most that the prophet here is Moses. So you're not the, you're not the Messiah. You're not a resurrected Elijah. Maybe you're a resurrected Moses. Now, again, to many of us, that seems odd, but if you read through the Old Testament, you see it's really not all that odd at all for these religious leaders to ask this. For he was, again, a primary figure, both in the narrative of Old Testament Scripture as well as in prophecies regarding the end times. I don't have time to turn back there, but in books like Deuteronomy chapter 18, you have prophecies regarding God raising up a man like Moses, a man who would be able to deliver the law to the people of God, and a man who would ultimately be able to lead the people of God in their own final exodus out of the wilderness, and into the promised land. This was the central figure of the Exodus. And the Exodus was that central narrative or central story that really drove all the beliefs of these Old Testament people. 
And so again, as they look at John the Baptist, they wonder, well, is he this prophet? If not the Messiah, if, if not Elijah, maybe he's the one that will lead us in our own exodus. Maybe he's the one that God will send to, to once again bring the law back to us, once again deliver us as we have long been waiting to happen. But much to their own disappointment and no doubt much to their own confusion, John the Baptist again says, no, no, that's, that's not me. At this point in time, you can understand how confused these Jewish leaders must have been. For again, as they look at John the Baptist, they're trying to interpret him through the lens of the story that they know so well. For they, they are thinking in terms of Old Testament scripture. They're thinking, okay, well, here's the prophets that we know. He's not that. And behind all that, they're, they're thinking of that familiar narrative, the narrative of the Exodus. And so maybe he fits somewhere in there. And again, it's, it's by no means a, a stretch of the imagination to see why they would think that. Not just in terms of those familiar prophets, but again, in terms of that familiar narrative, the setting where this is taking place. For as we read earlier, both in verses 19 through 22, and then at the end of our passage, in verse 28, we must answer the question, where is the setting of the story taking place? Where are the people of God having to come out to to, to see John the Baptist? Where is John the Baptist baptizing people day in and day out? Where? He's in the wilderness. Not just the wilderness, but we are told in verse 28 that these things are all taking place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John the Baptist was doing his ministry. Well, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament narrative, you understand how significant words like wilderness are. And how significant of a choice it would have been for John the Baptist to just choose to baptize people in the Jordan, outside of Jerusalem. The significance of this, of course... It's because that same wilderness was Israel's old stomping grounds throughout the Old Testament. The wilderness played a a key role in that ongoing Exodus narrative for the people of God. You see this centrally, first, in the story of the Exodus. For having delivered his people out of Egypt, where does God take them through? The wilderness. And at the end of their journey in the wilderness, where does God take them to? The promised land. And on their way into the promised land, what do they just happen to have to pass through? The the Jordan River. And so you read back in books like Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. You see that the place where John was baptizing just happened to be the exact same place where God had once led his people to enter into that long-awaited promised land. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, we see the story pick up. It says, it came out after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which your soul or your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as this great river, the, the, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Here we have this famous passage, this inspiring passage in the book of Joshua. 
in which the people of God are finally leaving the, are finally leaving the wilderness. They're finally preparing to cross over to the Jordan and enter into the long-awaited promised land where they hope they will enjoy permanent rest. But of course, as you read throughout the book of the Old Testament, you understand that rest is not permanent. And as sweet and precious as that promised land was, time and time again, where do the Israelites find themselves? Back in the wilderness, driven out of Jerusalem, driven out of the promised land, into the wilderness, awaiting their future exodus to go back into the promised land. But every time they get back into the promised land, what happens? Well, they sin and they're driven out. And they live lives in the wilderness. And so generation after generation after generation is given this familiar narrative. With every Passover celebration, they're reminded of this familiar narrative. That God once delivered us out of Egypt into the promised land, and one day God will do it again. But in the future it will be permanent. In the future we will not lose the promised land. In the future it will be brought to us by that perfect king, by that perfect Messiah who will finally give us all that we had hoped to enjoy. This was the narrative of every devout Jew in John the Baptist's day. This was the imagery that came to their minds when they thought of the faithfulness of God. This was the constant anticipation that every Israelite knew by heart. And it was this anticipation that was in their minds or on their minds as they watched John the Baptist and as they listened to him speak about the kingdom of God. As they watched him act and dress like a prophet, as they saw him on the banks of the Jordan looking into the promised land, and as they thought, maybe this is it. Maybe the end is finally coming. And so we see these Israeli leaders coming out to John the Baptist. And while their questions might initially seem somewhat bizarre to us, they are perfectly acceptable and reasonable in light of the narrative, in light of the story that they knew so well. In some ways, I think, this, this knowledge of their story is a bit admirable, honestly. For it shows these Jewish leaders, while they completely missed the ultimate meaning of the story, they still knew it. They were still anticipating the end of the story. They were still interpreting all that was happening around them through that lens. Because they knew, deep in their heart, that God ultimately would be faithful. Their anticipation, then, is somewhat praiseworthy, but ultimately... Their anticipation failed to appreciate the story that was set before them. Because while they did have that nice, sturdy box of theology with all their characters, all their prophecies, they could not understand how John the Baptist fit in all of it. They couldn't understand how the events as they were unfolding fit into that old story, and as such, they were unable to appreciate the magnitude of what was unfolding before them. To help unfold that magnitude... And to help show them exactly how John the Baptist fits into the story, we see John the Baptist take over the conversation, beginning in verse 22, and it's here that we come to this new chapter or new story. Follow along with me, if you will, in John chapter 1, picking it back up in verse 22. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. 
It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. As they finally ask him to explain himself, explain who he is and then why he does what he does, John does something, John speaks in a way that would have been astonishing to these Jewish leaders and ought to still astonish us today. For John is, being, is, is beginning to just barely turn that page to the next chapter. He's beginning to slowly pull that curtain back and reveal to the Jews of his day and reveal to us today that the story that he is presenting is exponentially more incredible than anything that anyone has ever possibly understood. And it begins with the way that he speaks of his own role. It begins with the way he speaks of himself as a prophet. This comes out again in verses 21, or 22 through 23. When they finally ask him to explain himself and, and tell them who he is, John gives this answer that seems a bit cryptic, but is incredibly, incredibly profound when you understand where it comes from. For in response to this question of who are you, we find in verse 23 that John the Baptist says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now again, to many of us today, this quote doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. If anything, it seems like a non-answer to their question. But if you're one of these religious leaders, you understand how profound of an answer this is. For John here, in explaining his role, is declaring himself to be a prophet, but he's declaring himself to not just be any prophet, but the prophet they'd been awaiting for since long ago. He does this by quoting a passage out of Isaiah 40. In fact, if you will turn back to Isaiah 40, because it's important to understand how significant of a passage this is that John pulls out as, a self, um, as, as this self-fulfillment. You see, Isaiah 40 plays a central role in the book of Isaiah, as, or Isaiah 40 plays a central role in the unfolding narrative of Isaiah and in the unfolding history of Israel. For much of the first 39 chapters, you find prophecies regarding the, the suffering of the Israelites. The suffering that they face in the wilderness. The suffering they face as a result of their sin. And in fact, even as you come to the end of Isaiah chapter 39, you see it's that same suffering that the prophet is ultimately speaking of. But then something happens in Isaiah chapter 40. For having spoken of all this suffering, of all this judgment, Isaiah 40 opens up with these words. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear out the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You see, the transition here in Isaiah 40 is the transition from suffering, from punishment, to glory, to grace. And as this great declaration of, of transition is taking place, the prophet is told to speak this word of comfort. He's told to proclaim that the time of warfare has, has come to an end and that God is sending his king finally to deliver his people. Again, as you read through the text, it is perhaps no surprise to see that same imagery of the Exodus used time and time again for their coming out of the wilderness. 
They're headed to the promised land finally, and God is going to be the one to accomplish it. And this transition all begins, according to Isaiah 40, with this mysterious voice crying out in the wilderness. This mysterious voice calling people to prepare themselves for God is coming. What John is saying in John chapter 1, verse 23, then, is, is I'm that prophet. I'm the one that's been sent to prepare the way for the Lord, which means I'm not just a prophet, I am the last prophet. I am the one who will point to the actual fulfillment of all of these promises you've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. This identity was not just given to John in this moment, it was spoken to John's parents back in Luke chapter 1, where they were told he would be the forerunner to the Messiah. He would be the one to point the way to the Messiah that they had been waiting for for so long. And John the Baptist then is simply confirming that prophecy that was already fulfilled. He's telling them that that while he looks like these other prophets, while he sounds like these older prophets, he's actually better than that. For his role is infinitely more powerful, infinitely more more celebratory or, or worthy of celebration. For he's the one that's going to bring this to fruition. And he's a prophet, finally, that's not simply bringing a word of judgment, as so many prophets did. He's a prophet whose ultimate message is comfort. And if you were in this camp of the people of God, think how precious that prophecy would be to hear. For all they really had been looking at for centuries were words of judgment. So much of what they experienced for so many generations was judgment, first under people like the Babylonians and Assyrians, but now in the Gospel of John under the Romans. We're just as godless. And so for generation after generation, the people of God had waited to hear this word of comfort. And John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he says, that is what I am here to do. And so we see this similar character, but but this greater prophet, this greater message. Not only that, but as, as John continues to describe his ministry, we see that while his words, while his setting are also familiar, the narrative, the story that he's ta- telling, is also ultimately exponentially better than anything they could have ever expected. For follow along with me again in John 1, verses 24 through 27. Having heard this answer from Isaiah the prophet, they then asked him and said, why then are you baptizing? They're asking him, why do you have authority to do this? On what grounds do you baptize people? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, and John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. As the conversation continues, and as they know that that John is is not claiming to be Moses nor Elijah, their question naturally is, okay, well then who do you think you are? Who are you to baptize people? Who are you to call Jewish people to be baptized and to purify themselves? You see, again, these Jewish leaders were not just looking for anyone. They were looking for a king that, that screamed authority. They were looking for a person that would come on the scene and immediately would bring deliverance from the Romans. They were looking for an Elijah figure. They were looking for a Moses figure. They were looking for a David. Nothing more. 
John the Baptist then confused them, for he didn't appear to be as good as all the prophecies had led them to believe. But in response to their lack of faith, in response to perhaps their disappointment, John reveals to them that no, the one that is actually coming is infinitely greater than anything you could ever possibly guessed. He is so great, John says, that John believes he himself is unworthy to even untie the man's shoes. This declaration of John, this this humble claim, is pretty incredible when you step back and consider who sang it. For we already mentioned that, that John the Baptist was a pretty big deal. I mean, even for these Jewish leaders to ask if he's Elijah or Moses tells you how big of a deal he was. For these were not names that were just easily thrown out. There was reason to to see him as a great figure for, again, he was in the wilderness and thousands of people were flocking to him. Thousands of people were coming out to hear him speak. Thousands of people were willing to be baptized. Speaking of his greatness, Charles Spurgeon says this, He says, John the Baptist was so much more than a prophet. When he stood in the wilderness to preach, his burning eloquence soon attracted the people from Jerusalem and from all the cities around. And the banks of the Jordan saw a vast multitude of eager hearers crowding around them. Thousands gathered to listen to the teaching of this one who had not been brought up at the feet of rabbis. Neither had he been taught eloquence after the fashion of schools. John was simply a man of bold, plain, telling, commanding speech. In response to that, the thousands and thousands of people flocked to him. If you were living in John the Baptist's day, then you would see John the Baptist as a pretty big deal. It's hard to think of anyone who would have been bigger in that surrounding area than John the Baptist. And yet, despite his status as a celebrity. Despite the thousands of people flocking to him and doing what he commanded them to do, John gives this shockingly humble self-evaluation. And when he compares himself to this one who is about to arrive, he says, I'm not even fit to untie the man's shoes. Which is just another way of saying, I'm entirely unworthy of even being in his presence, much less a servant much less a follower. John says this, of course, not to demonstrate how great he is. The takeaway from this message is not, oh, wow, John is an amazing person. Look how humble he is. We need to be more like John, even though I'll probably say something along those lines later. Now, the main point of him saying this is not, look how great John is, but how amazing must be the one he is proclaiming. How How incredible must his power be? How unbelievably glorious must this coming king be if John the Baptist, who has thousands of followers himself, is unworthy to do the most menial of tasks? As John says this, he is incredibly telling these Jewish leaders that that great narrative they had had believed for so long, that narrative of the Exodus, that great hope they had of Moses, was child's play compared to what ultimately was about to take place. Now, this Moses was infinitely better. This king was infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful. The ultimate promised land that he will lead us to is infinitely better than anything you could possibly imagine. This is the king I'm preparing you to meet. 
And while John the Baptist, I do not think, could have possibly fully understood the meaning of his words, I believe ultimately they come from his own faith in a passage like Isaiah 40. They ultimately come from his understanding that when the prophet says, make way or make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, Isaiah was not speaking figuratively. He was not saying make way for a king God will send. He is saying make way for God himself is coming. God is about to be in your midst. And this is why this narrative is so significant. This is why John the Baptist is calling people for baptism. For his narrative is one of infinite glory and awe-inspiring holiness. But of course, if we stop here in this narrative, there appears to be a bit of a contradiction. For it is hard to imagine how John the Baptist could both speak of, of peace and comfort and at the same time speak of this terrifyingly holy God who's about to be in the presence. How can you possibly have both things at the same time? Well, I think the reason why you have that is ultimately when, is answered in John's ministry. For in recognition of his holiness and in preparation for these people to be comforted, we again are reminded in verse 27 exactly what John the Baptist is doing. Look there again. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Here you have the ultimate demand of John the Baptist's ministry. And it is here that you have the sheer anticipation of the arrival of the Christ really captured beautifully. For here you have this ongoing ministry of John in which people, Jew and Gentile alike, are being called to baptism. They're being called to repentance. They're being called to this devoted act of preparation for the king that is about to arrive on the scene. The message of John's baptism was, as I already mentioned, a message of of repentance. For by coming out to John and being baptized, these individuals were saying, we are unclean. We are unfit to be in the presence of God. And so we must cleanse ourselves. We must prepare ourselves. The imagery of this preparation that came to my mind as I, as I studied this text in John is the same imagery that is found back in the book of Exodus. For if you remember back in the story of Exodus, the people of God went through a similar act. For in the book of Exodus, having been delivered from Egypt, we have this awe-inspiring event that happens at Mount Sinai. And as the people come before Mount Sinai, before the presence of God, they are, understandably, awestruck and terrified. For it is the first time that they are being confronted with the glory of God, the purity of God. And so as a means to prepare them for this interaction, we read this account in Exodus chapter 19. Beginning in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. You shall set bounds for your people all around saying, Be aware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. 
No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And it goes on and again speaks of this ongoing, intense preparation of the people of God. Why was it so important for the people of God to prepare at Mount Sinai? What was the message being proclaimed to them? It was not a message just of their own sinfulness. It was a message of the glory and purity of Yahweh. It was a physical picture of how unworthy they were to be in his presence. As you come to the days leading up to Christ's own presentation, then you come up to a similar picture of thousands of people coming out from, uh, coming out from Jerusalem to the wilderness to do what? To repent, to be baptized, to prepare themselves for the presence of a king. This was an incredible ministry, and it is at this point in time you can understand how challenging and confrontational this ministry of John the Baptist was. For John was not just calling out pagans and Romans to get baptized. John was pointing to the religious Jewish people. And he was saying, you're not ready. You have no idea what's coming. Prepare yourselves, purify yourselves for what is about to happen. The one who is about to arrive is exponentially holier than anything you've ever seen. And the story that is about to unfold is exponentially greater than anything you could ever possibly have hoped. And so the scene that is being said in the days leading up to Christ's first presentation in his public ministry is this scene of thousands of people eagerly anticipating, eagerly awaiting the arrival of the king, the one who would deliver them, the one who would defeat the enemies of God, the one that would finally bring them into the promised land that they had waited to enjoy for century after century after century. And you can only imagine the sense of anticipation that must have come to their minds as they awaited that presentation, as they awaited his coming. As John baptizes these individuals then, as he ministers, as he preaches, he does so not as a brand new story that is cut off from the Old Testament, he does so as this extension of the Old Testament. And he does so as a physical reminder of God's faithfulness, as a physical reminder of God's holiness. And he does so as a reminder to these people of the fact that when Jesus came, he did not come as some precious figure who just came to to be a good example for us to follow. He came to be the king before whom all must submit and bow down to. It is this king that ultimately we prepare to celebrate next week. It is that same king who entered into Jerusalem on a donkey who was praised and worshipped, and rightfully so, because people were beginning to understand how glorious he was. But it was this king who, even at the point of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, was still so misunderstood, whose power was not yet fully understood, whose glory was not yet fully understood. For that glory and that power would only be seen ultimately not in his kingly rule the moment he steps foot into Jerusalem, but ultimately in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we say all of this ultimately as a call for ourselves to be prepared for what we are celebrating next week. For again, I confess in my own heart that as, as I come into Easter any given year, it's easy to to undermine and underappreciate just the significance of what it is we are proclaiming at Easter. The significance of what is being proclaimed even on Palm Sunday. 
It is easy to forget just how shocking this imagery in the Gospel of John would have been, how shocking it would have been for John the Baptist to stand up and say, the one who is coming is is infinitely greater than I, is, is so great that makes me unworthy to even do the most menial of tasks. The question we must ask ourselves then as we prepare to celebrate Easter is whether or not we we appreciate that same glory. Do we stand rightly in awe of the one whom we proclaim? Or have we forgotten just how incredible the story is? I say all of this is simply a means to prepare ourselves. And as we do this, unbelievers, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, my greatest hope for you is that you would do that this morning. We will speak in more depth of the, the details of this kingly figure Christ next week and how ultimately he delivers his people. But I pray you do not wait until then to put your faith in him. I pray that you understand now how glorious he is. And unbelievers, I pray that you believe him and repent of your sins. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that we do not lose sight of how strange of a story this is. I pray we never read the words of John the Baptist and just think, oh yeah, okay, I, I think I understand where the story's headed. I got it. But might we, like all of John the Baptist's contemporaries, be properly struck with awe of the ministry that he proclaimed, of the message that he proclaimed. And as we are necessarily and properly struck with awe, let us use these coming days leading up to Easter to, to really prepare ourselves. Prepare ourselves to celebrate our king's coming, our king's death, our king's resurrection, and our king's eventual return. And all this preparation, I pray that we do strive to be more like John the Baptist. Might we strive to not bring more attention upon ourselves, but speak only of the glory of Christ. Might we strive to be a voice of comfort, not just a voice of judgment. Might we strive to use every breath we have to, to bring people to Christ, to speak of his greatness, to speak of his glory. And as we do so, might we see the beauty of of providing that service. If we provide it, not for some undeserving king, but for the king of all creation. And so let us do it to his glory. That being said, let me close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, it is hard to do this story justice, God. For it is hard to to really appreciate how awe-inspiring that ministry must have been to see John speak the way he did, to see the way he was dressed, to see him baptizing so many, God. What, a, what an odd scene it must have been before so many people. But what a glorious picture it is of a people preparing themselves to be in the presence of an almighty king. What a beautiful picture it is of the proper humility that one must have before an almighty king. And as such, God, what an important example it is for us to follow. For you're still so unworthy to be in your presence, God. God, convict us of failing to appreciate your glory. Might we be convicted of treating the story of your son's coming and his death and burial and resurrection as just some commonplace tale we've heard so many times. And I pray rather that every time we speak these words, Lord, we might be struck with proper humility, proper appreciation, God. And in the coming days, I pray that we work hard to prepare ourselves so that when Easter morning comes in just a week, Lord, it might come as the greatest moment of celebration in our lives. It might bring us the greatest joy that is undying for it will come as a reminder that the king has come and has delivered us into the promised land and there's the king's return that we still await today. We love you, God, and we praise you.
be with us as we close our time now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.